In September, the state's new chief judge, Rowan Wilson, convened a public hearing on civil legal services in New York with a focus on unmet representation needs in the areas of housing, consumer debt, family law, and disability benefits. For more on the issues, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Adrian Holder, chief attorney for the civil practice at the Legal Aid Society, who serves on the board of directors for the New York Legal Services Coalition and testified at September's hearing. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Thank you for having me. So in the opening remarks uh, for the chief judge, he said that, quote, no other state come close to New York's commitment to civil legal services. So what does that commitment translate to in terms of New Yorkers accessing representation in civil cases? Is there a system of haves and have nots? There's definitely a system of haves and have-nots. I am actually very proud that New York has made a commitment to funding um, civil legal services, Um, but I have to say that it still is not enough. Um, When you think about the the funding that um, the state is providing, it's for people who are 200% of poverty, And we know that there are um, lots of those people just in that group of people who are some of the lowest income people in the state. But even within that group, um, there still are a lot of people who get turned away, um, who are not able to receive legal assistance. And then you can imagine for people who are above 200 percent of poverty, people who um, may be more middle class, working class folks, Um, They don't qualify for free legal assistance, but they certainly still need it. And they, too, can be oftentimes just one paycheck or one incident away from um, devastation of losing their home, having problems in their um, household with their family unit, or perhaps finding themselves having wage theft or other issues. And it's, it's really scary when you think about it. Well, yeah. What does it mean to go into a family law matter or a housing case without legal representation? What sort of disadvantage does that represent for someone? It's pretty devastating for a lot of folks not understanding perhaps what their rights are, not understanding how to navigate um, the legal system, uh, perhaps going into an agency like Social Security Administration or even a court system, not really understanding what's going to happen. It's it can be overwhelming. And for so many, so many folks, um, you know, I'm an attorney and I dealt with some issues with um, an older family member who um, was was in seriously declining health. And, you know, it took a lot for me to navigate the system of trying to make sure that she had the care that she needed and end of life services that were going to be needed. And I'm a lawyer. And so for people who that is not um, their issue, for people understanding that from state to state and sometimes from county to county, what it is that you can expect um, and what it is that you can get for yourself varies so tremendously. It can be, depending on the issue, it can be a matter of um, separation, um, permanent separation of families with um, parents or other guardians not understanding what their rights. It can mean a loss of health care, which could mean that there's going to have real impact on your life. It can, you know, it can mean the displacement out of your home or an inability to actually get um, certain types of benefits, subsistence benefits that are going to keep you um, and your family um, eating and keep a roof over your head. So it's it's all the things um, that 
we really want people to have because it's not only beneficial for them, but we should understand as a society, um, when people need help, we really should be offering it to them because it ends up making it better and making those systems more tame for everybody. One of the areas where there seems to be a growing uh, justice gap, so to speak, is the area of consumer debt collection lawsuits. Can you talk about what those cases are and what can be the outcomes for people who don't have a lawyer in those cases? Yeah, consumer debt is pretty serious um, for a lot of folks. You know, you get a judgment for debt and, you know, it can live um, for a very, very long time on people's record. And what people may end up finding is that, you know, their wages get garnished or um, they might find that um, their their tax returns um, that they actually get intercepted to to depending on the type of debt and how far it's gone, uh, what can happen. But also consumer debt issues can lead to people having real problems with their credit. And, you know, in this day and age, and depending on um, what it is that you're trying to do, that can actually circumvent various opportunities for you. There's a range of consumer debt, whether it's student loan, whether it's credit card debt, um, whether it's medical debt. And we see that there increasingly um, there are more and more people who have really incredible medical debt. And there are there are instruments um, or or perhaps products, if you will, where people find themselves entering into debt that had no business being there. For instance, one of our clients at the Legal Aid Society um, was trying to was was a Medicaid recipient and and easily had um, some essential dental care that was necessary that could have been covered under Medicaid, but was told to sign a bunch of papers that she thought was actually the same things that you and I may sign um, at a doctor's appointment. Um, and while she was, um, you know, in the chair and getting gassed up um, for pain and everything, um, they had her sign some additional documents that ended up being a dental credit card, a, a, a card, um, a, a product that the dentist or the oral surgeon was actually going to charge um, the services on, despite the fact that this person, this, this, uh, this professional, um, I guess I should call them this dentist knew that the client was um, a recipient of Medicaid did not need to get this end up having this, this huge debt put on did not get the full range of services that she was entitled to, but was charged on the card. And when she, didn't pay and couldn't pay, she was told um, that she had this incredible debt and was being sued for that debt in court. And even in trying to deal with her um, Medicaid managed care plan, trying to get them to be responsive to assisting and making sure that she wouldn't be held liable for it, it proved to be extremely difficult. And that's an example right there where, you know, she ended up having family members and other folks who were just really pulling their hair out, trying to figure out how they were going to help her with this debt when she actually should not have ever had this kind of a credit card um, assigned to her. Luckily, because she had lawyers, we were able to work out the issues. But you can imagine how many other people that that happens to. And although we are, you know, reporting and working with trying to make sure that this particular um, um, dentist um, is held accountable for what it is that he's doing. How many other folks are doing that? And we see inc increasingly um, in New York more and more cases 
of extreme medical debt um, through hospitals or, um, you know, with other um, folks with medical services having been um, tendered. Well, I want to talk about solutions to the representation gap, but first let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. Uh, this is the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with Adrian Holder, Chief Attorney for the Civil Practice at the Legal Aid Society. So it seems like the simplest solution to the gap in representation would be to increase the assistance that's available and raise the eligibility for who can qualify for help. Is it that simple to address this problem? I mean, it can be. That is definitely something right there. We should increase the amount of funding that would be available so that we can hire other types of advocates um, and attorneys um, who can help people with their problems. But it it shouldn't stop there. You know, part of the, the issues that we have and understanding, you know, what people are facing has to do with the fact that um, there are a lot of reasons why people can get caught up in a legal system. So, for instance, um, there is a way when you think about housing and evictions are up across the state and in some upstate as well as um, downstate counties, um, evictions are up higher than they were uh, pre-pandemic. And it's alarming. But we also know that housing costs are up. Um If you wanna keep down the number of filings and therefore perhaps the number of entanglements that people have with um, the justice system, you might also look at why people are being brought into court in the first place. And if there's a way in which to try to decrease the number of people going in. So what does that mean? Does that mean that perhaps there's early intervention, perhaps there's education and people understanding what their rights are can avoid some of the pitfalls that have them fall into, you know, issues around consumer debt or fall into pitfalls of issues of um, not getting repairs made in their apartment, that there are actually things that folks can do for themselves and rights that they have in getting those matters addressed. But there's also things like changes in the law. We had advocated for an enhanced protection for tenants called good cause eviction. The idea that people who live um, in apartments that may um, not have rent regulation status, Um, you know, the protection that people who are current in their rent, who are not um, a nuisance in the apartment, that they cannot be evicted except for cause, you know, meaning that they somehow are a nuisance or they're not paying their rent or there's something else going on, that they automatically get um, a new lease offered to them with whatever increase um, a landlord is legally able to, to get. That kind of protection would take out thousands and thousands of cases that are what we call no defense holdovers, where landlords just decide that they're just going to have people um, get evicted and move. That would be a lot less cases in housing court. And perhaps we would change the dynamic of the number of advocates and attorneys that you actually need to be there. And it has the best result, which is that you actually have people, tenants, largely low income and people of color, a lot of single family households that live in a lot of these um, unregulated apartments throughout the state, they would actually have the assurance of knowing that they are going to be able to preserve their housing and be and remain in place. Well, going back to the idea, though, about trying to increase people's access to attorneys, if there was additional funding or income eligibility was expanded, are there enough attorneys who are willing and able to answer the call and take on these cases? there would be. And let me just say, with the the Permanent Commission on Access to Justice, we had the annual chief um, judges hearing 
up in Albany back in September. And we've been working, I sit on the Permanent Commission on Access to Justice, and one of the members, and we had been working with Neil Steinkamp from Scout as a consultant, and he had been working with a number of stakeholders to really try to measure what would be needed. And what it what it was actually shared during the hearing is that we would probably need an additional, um, close to a billion dollars of additional funding here in the state to be able to meet um, the needs, you know, to close, the, completely close the, the access to justice gap um, for New Yorkers. And that is telling, and I'm glad that um, that was said, but in terms of attracting the folks to do it, I definitely think that you could if, one, the resources were there, um, two, that, of course, it would have to be something that would be phased in over time. You know, we're experiencing the issue in New York City where we've expanded our housing programs, but, you know, you need time to be able to cultivate um, you know, like a, a, a stream of people um, coming from law schools or lateraling in from other positions to understand that, you know, some of these practice areas are areas that perhaps they never really thought about doing when before they went to law school or while they were in law school. But it is definitely one of interest to folks. You know, these are interesting positions where folks can actually not only help people, but engage in, um, you know, economic, social and racial justice through a lot of these, these this work. Um, I think that with that kind of, of commitment of, of phasing in, you will find people who are going to want to do this work. Um, and it's really essential, again, to making uh, New York a great place. Um, Neil Steinkamp, in his report, when he talked about the investment um, for civil legal services, um, basically shared that for every $1 that's invested, there is a savings of $10 to the state. And that's like, you know, shelter, um, emergency shelter, emergency, um, you know, food stamps or public assistance, you know, trips into emergency rooms for people who um, are not able to properly um, access their health care. It's all of the things. And so those, th that is a good investment. I think that you would find advocates who'd want to do this work, but it does have to be this, this sizable um, investment, but it's investment that is going to give back so much and savings um, for government and other entities in, in a lot of meaningful ways. Well, finally, the hearing we referenced back in September was led by the judiciary. Does the judiciary have the capacity to address this gap by itself, or will it require legislative action and the governor's sign-off as well? It, it, it definitely um, is going to require um, the governor and a lot of our legislative leaders. What I appreciate is that from um, Chief Judge Lipman um, all the way to now um, our new Chief uh, Justice um, uh, Rowan Wilson, there's a real commitment um, by the Office of Court Administration and the leadership, the Chief Judge to um, really tackle these issues and to partner. And in fact, during the hearing, um, Chief Judge uh, Wilson even, um, he even asked and remarked um, with one of the lawyers, um, I guess, counsel um, for a major beer company, he, he asked him, well, you know, you have signed on with other leaders in private industry asking government to um, invest in civil legal services. Why don't you all also invest? And I think that, you know, 
having that perspective that the chief judge has that, you know, it's going to take everyone. And to the extent that private industry recognizes that their employees and other folks, as well as their consumers, need to have these services because it allows them to be um, viable and have economic stability and being able to fully participate, um, you know, in our in our society. I think it is great that you have a chief judge that is willing to partner with other parts of government, but also pushing and saying the private sector also should um, join in and making that investment. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been speaking with Adrian Holder, Chief Attorney for the Civil Practice at the Legal Aid Society, who also serves on the Board of Directors for the New York Legal Services Coalition. Adrian, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information.